Hello and welcome to the Musty Creative Podcast. I am your host, Jesus, and I am joined by my friend and yours... Ferns B. Bancroft II. Thank you for joining us today. Just acting like <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, even though it's musting here, because we've been working too hard. If this is your first time listening to us, we are the Musty Collective, and we motivate ourselves to become better storytellers. Today, we are beginning our Understanding Story series. For our first installment of the series, we're going to talk about something that I've never heard before until I started reading it in this book. Uh, and the book is entitled Story by Robert McKee called Didacticism. You are, are you ready for this, Michelle? What the heck is that? Yeah, we're, we're getting into some literary philosophy. It sounds like a dinosaur name. Almost, yeah, but the, but the, the a, di- a, a didact a didactosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> now let's start the show. Didacticism? Didacticism is an excessive morality argument intended for instruction, instructive. You can also say that it's didactic poetry. It's inclined to teach or lecture others too much. A boring or didactic speaker. Teaching or intending to teach a moral lesson. Essentially, the whole idea is, is that when you are you, you know, uh, experiencing something that's didactic, it's definitely slanted to give you a moral lesson to really, you know, show you that something is very, very bad and you shouldn't do that. And that's not bad, right? We have many parables, fables, different stories out there that really push a narrative like listen to your parents or obey the authorities or, you know, be a a good studious worker. Don't be lazy. All those kind of things. So why are we bringing this up today, Michelle? Um, cause we had nothing else to talk about. No, no, <laughs> no, uh, no, it's, that's not, that's not why. <laughs> no, I've been reading through this book slowly, uh, slowly but surely, uh, Robert McKee, uh, story and came to the chapter on structure and meaning and came across this idea. And really when I, when I heard, or when I read this part of the, the chapter, just a light bulb went off about how this happens in film mainly kind of like the main interest i was like oh this is probably why a lot of people don't have a good time watching religious films Hmm. because the stories are heavily slanted and again if if that is your point you know as a writer to do so that's fine but there's a strong argument not to do that to an audience it can come in different forms like movies books and shows but it's just pretty much anything that's dramatically emphasizing a moral yep pushing philosophy on someone slanting an argument shoving something down someone's throat yeah i mean those are all things i've heard mm-hmm. when i've tried to say hey you should watch this film <laughs> and it's like is it religious is like 
Yeah, but it's really got a good story. No, <laughs> I'm not gonna watch this. Yeah, because people feel like they're gonna come in and hear a sermon,、mm-hmm. and that might have worked two thousand years ago, but I think today's society has really changed. Not because it, not saying one's better than the other or anything like that, but we have different ways of communicating, and to have a really great story, you can still teach a lesson. In fact. Some of the great lessons I've learned throughout my years have been through fictional stories,、mm-hmm. whether through audio,、uh, radio dramas, or through watching films or TV shows. Yeah, and then、um, just for the other side of the coin, PSAs、yep. are great forms of didacticism. That's true. In fact, Michelle filmed an award-winning PSA a couple years ago. Award winning. Not as well. Well, I filmed a PSA. You did film a PSA. I don't think it won anything. Yeah, I was just trying to build you up. That's all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so PSAs are promoting like a better way of life, and their messages are really clear. Like, don't vape, don't do drugs, brush your teeth. Do you remember those, those, those little cartoon dinosaurs that used to teach us how to brush our teeth? No. Actually, I don't. Really? Yeah. It was like little T Rexes, and he was like brushing his his little T Rex teeth. It was really cute. Yeah. No, I actually I'm not I'm not remembering that at all. But、okay. I I will say what I do remember growing up as a kid were the the little short PSAs after cartoon shows, especially from the 80s and early 90s, like、mm-hmm. don't join a gang or don't do drugs. Like I remember Double Dragons, and um and Captain Planet having those like. You know, it's not good to litter or double dragons. Like, hey, you know, don't join that gang. <laughs> it's better to use your karate for good or something like that. <laughs> or what about the one where it's like this was like a really classic one, but it's like an egg cracks in a frying pan. It's like this is your brain on drugs. Yep, yep, yep. Or I remember、uh, watermelons being like dropped from high places. It's like this is what happens to your head if you don't wear a helmet. Oh, you remember those? That's it. Sounds familiar, but I don't. I don't remember the visuals of it, but I feel like I remember the sound. Yeah, and then I think it. You know, the classic meme one is like from、uh, you know、um, uh, GI Joe, where it's because、uh, knowledge is power. Go Joe! You know, like they'd always have those little PSAs at the end.、But、anyways, <laughs> so again, it's not like it's bad, right? You can still feel moved by a really good PSA. And I think you know people who are older than us. They had those,、um, I guess those afternoon shows. I forget what they're called, like afternoon PSAs,、mm-hmm. where it's like Jenny got pregnant or something like that. But、um, after school specials. There we go. After school specials before my time, but I remember people talking about it. And yeah, so they can be totally fine. But what Robert McKee is getting at when it comes to story, and you have to read the kind of whole book to kind of get the the context, because he really aims at the idea that story is the way that people are going to learn. Uh, you know, wisdom in this day and age, right? We, they, you know, the way that society looks at things, they don't look towards religion that much. They even doubt scientists,、um, and they even di- doubt the philosophers. Now, they're really, you know, if you look at what audiences are going towards, they're learning their lessons of morality, lessons of life, through、um, film and through television and and the screenplay. So he really writes about the idea of telling those great stories because it helps our society to grow. And to be、uh, encouraging and nurturing, and to be loving, as they learn these lessons, right? Just like fables of the past, like Aesop's fables, taught societies beforehand, 
we now have the MCU teaching us <laughs> the moralities of today. And, and if you really look at it, like, you know, people will look at, like, what Iron Man does or what Captain America does and mm-hmm. say, like, oh, that was right. And that's why fans get so upset because if a writer then does something different with that character where the morality changes and it's against what the character has stood for before, that's where a lot of audiences will get really upset. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what we wanted to talk about. Didacticism. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when it comes to film and television, Robert Key has realized that telling stories can be much more effective if you avoid didacticism. And again, so now we're going to get into like what it really is, essentially. But to build some context to it, there's a couple of words we want to get out to predicate this conversation. So the first word is premise, uh, which is essentially the idea that inspires a writer. Uh, a writer's desire to create a story, right? Like when you are sitting there and you're like, oh, what if what if there was a world where it was all underwater and only a few people were still surviving? Hmm. Water world, right? Now, it's not a full story, but it's a premise. Mm-hmm. Then he talks about a controlling idea, which is another word for a theme. What is a theme, Michelle? So a controlling idea or a theme is the story's ultimate meaning expressed through the action and aesthetic emotion of the last act's climax. The story's theme is not a single word like love or crime, but it's a full, coherent sentence. So the theme should be a statement that's formed in a structure of an argument. Yeah. So, for example, happiness fills our lives when we learn to love unconditionally. And that would be a really good example of a theme for the film Groundhog's Day. Yep. Another one is to defeat ultimate evil, we must be willing to let the hate go in our own hearts. Return of the Jedi. And then when you have that theme and the theme really speaks through the film, right, you can actually get that meaning without Luke Skywalker sitting there at the pulpit you know, preaching it for five minutes <laughs> and see that's the difference of the story his whole argument robert mckee's argument is aesthetic um aesthetic emotion mm-hmm. which is what he he calls art where the mind or where the intellectual side of you and the emotional side of you come together for a moment that's what he believes art is and so when you have that moment you can actually realize a true meaning and yet still have this this uh, this big tie to your emotional side and be moved to tears to 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 cry or to joy and then you're still learning this factual lesson about life so yeah uh when i watch return of the jedi i totally get this meaning but again i didn't hear a five or ten or fifteen minute sermon to tell me that i need to let go of the hate in my own heart to defeat mm-hmm. evil now the last word uh little <laughs> word of the day here is controlling the controlling ideas negative or counter idea so a negative uh to any of these themes it's kind of easy to pick up once you know the theme so the counter idea for return of the jedi would be to defeat good we must give into our hate and that's that classic you know emperor palpatine good good <laughs> you fill yourself with your hate i feel your anger you know so it's one of those things that you have to kind of think about it a little bit, but once you've got it, it's kind of like a fun game. Once you finish a movie, hey, what was the theme of that movie? What was that movie trying to say? And it's interesting because I feel like people, 
for me personally, I take movies somewhat personally. I know you take movies very personally. Yes, I do. I personify. <laughs> personify. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like when I'm watching stuff, I will I will apply it to my own life. Like, how am I similar to the protagonist? And are there people in my life that are similar to the antagonist? And how do I deal with those people? So I think it's it's um, really cool to just like sort of examine movies that way, like not to just watch it passively and be like, okay, on to the next thing, but to just sort of take a minute to really think about what you just saw yeah. and how that actually um, relates to you personally and how you can translate that into thoughts and feelings that you have yourself. So it's, it's kind of a cool exercise to do. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things where it can be kind of a nostalgic, fun exercise to think back to, like, why did that movie make me feel that way? Like, Back to the Future is yeah. always going to be one of those movies, or E.T., mm-hmm. you know, and, and the kind of feelings that kind of help to express. Like, for me, E.T., like, you know, defend anyone's rights, even if they're different from you even if they don't like even if they're not from here defend people's rights to live freely Mm -hmm. that's kind of what i get as a theme but that's not like a good argument sentence but that's just you know me talking off the top of my head so it's cool because this all leads to the duality of theme versus anti-theme right so the whole reason the whole counter to didacticism to overly expressing morality and slanting the argument right you could have the theme of to defeat ultimate evil, we must be willing to let the hate go in our hearts. But if that's all you present to the to the audience uh, member, then they're gonna come out of the film and be like, "Man, felt like I got preached to." And for instance, like in that movie, like if Luke Skywalker just keeps saying throughout the film, "Oh man, I gotta like let go of my hate for my father. I gotta let go of my hate for my father," and then you don't have the antithesis of, for instance, like Darth Vader telling him, "There's no escape." You got to give into your hate. You know, mm-hmm. this is the only way you uh, and you keep saying this line over and over again. You know, you do not know the power of the dark side. Right. Keep giving you shoving into you. And then not just through their dialogue, but through the visual representation of the film itself. Like the rebels are losing that battle. Mm-hmm. It looks like Luke should give into his hate, slay the emperor and Darth Vader right then and there and save his friends. But the problem is, if he does that, he will allow Palpatine's hatred to live in him and he'll become the new emperor. Yeah. He will never truly have defeated ultimate evil, which is a story for another time for me to get into, but it's the whole, that that whole message is visually represented to you. He's desperate to help his friends, but he knows that if he goes this way, he will destroy everything that they fought so Mm -hmm. hard against. But again, it's all through the visuals and a little bit of dialogue. Yeah. So... If you want a film that, you know, doesn't, that is not didactic, you have to make sure to balance how much the audience sees from theme and anti-theme. It's kind of like bouncing back and forth, progressing your audience, moving dynamically between the positive and negative charges of the values at stake in the story. And kind of, and this is what McKee argues, that if you do not build up the negative, then the message of your story will feel heavy handed. Hmm. It's kind of like real life. Yeah. Because <laughs> usually, I mean, besides the like preaching stuff, like if you if 
life is that balance. Like you are receiving multiple messages of what's good and what's bad and what you should be doing with your life. Right. And then usually, I mean, most of the time, the protagonist usually chooses what's right. So it's kind of like that balance between good and evil and trying to figure out like what's right for you and your life and the decisions that you need to make. And I was just thinking like if you're, so for example, if you're telling a story of someone who was sick from a deadly disease and they fall in love with someone that could potentially kill them by just being close to them, the answer isn't as easy as just don't love that person anymore. That's true. There's a real struggle there. So you can care about the main character's feelings and you want them to be happy. And them being happy means them being with that person. But them not being able to be with the person that they love is a really tough choice to make. Yeah. But it's ultimately the safer route for their lives. So it's it's really not so clear cut which is what life is. Like, life is made up of all these crazy balances of, like... Up what and do, down. Yeah, like, what do I do? Do I do this or should I do that? Or, like, you know, what do I do with my life? And, it, and it's cool because once once you, you know, make this... Make a, a choice either way, you know, that becomes the theme of that lesson, that story that yeah. just happened in your life. And the film you just described was Five Feet Apart. Written by our friends Tobias Iaconis and Mickey Daltrey, right? Mm-hmm. So it was actually really cool. This film we had as, a, as an example of how not to be didactic in your storytelling. It's, it's great because it really pushes you back and forth. There's an event that says, hey, you got to be protective of yourself and not like uh, not get yourself killed by getting too close. Mm-hmm. And then there's another scene where it's like, oh, but they're so cute together. They need to be <laughs> close to each other. And then another scene, someone dies because they got too close. So it's like, oh, mm-hmm. no. Then they're like, oh, we got to hold hands and be in the winter snow. And it's like, that's that's the negative side. And then at the end, they make a decision. The characters make a decision to finally live apart so they cannot kill each other so quickly. Right? And it's Cause, just... Yeah, because the ultimate thing was like, they're going to eventually die I mean, all of us are, but like they were going to die a lot sooner than yeah. most people. Right. And so it's like, well, do I want to speed that up even more just right. by giving into my emotions or do I want to be logical about this? Yeah. So it, it's it's really, really great about how that use that that Uzi, that movie <laughs> <laughs> like, like went back word. and forth. <laughs> Uzi? I'm going to use that. Uzi? I'm going to Uzi that. We have three examples, and one of them we just said was five feet apart. Well, okay, I'll add that. We have four examples of well-balanced films that show both sides of the coin in a way that creates an even harder conflict to find a resolution to. So we have three examples. The first one is Inside Out. Yep. This is one of my favorite movies probably my top three um but it's hard for you to watch because it keeps making you cry it makes me weep bitterly um but it's 
pretty much the the balance is Joy discovers that she needs sadness in order for Riley to grow into a more ra- well-rounded adult. Um, she doesn't see the importance of sadness because she wants the best for Riley. And in her opinion, the best for Riley is for Riley to be happy all the time. Right. But Riley ultimately needs to experience the cathartic expression of sadness in order to process life's pains and release so that she can actually come back to joy Yeah, in the end. So. That, that scene in the film, and I'm forgetting the name of the, of the, the main writer of this film from Pixar. Pete Doctor. Pete Doctor, thank you. But that moment in the film where they're going over the memories mm-hmm. and then like sadness like touches it and then you see the full spectrum. Mm-hmm. She cried and then her friends came. Yeah. To cheer her up and so that led to joy and happiness. Mhm. Right? And then you went on even on a deeper level the release of that pain, right? To then give yourself over to it and allow it to swell over you and mm-hmm. then let it go yeah. so you can move forward in happiness mm-hmm. oh man like that's some good writing right there yeah excellent writing right there that's why it makes me cry yeah but it's but the the film never feels slanted because you're going back and forth in fact you hate joy the, at, you know you hate sadness. sadness at the beginning of the movie yeah because she's always ruining stuff and then you're like oh but we need her mm-hmm. and you just notice like when they when she does a thing for um bing bong she helps him oh bing bong because she like help like helps him consoles him and like he kind of cries a little bit then he feels yeah. better that's when you get the first hint mm-hmm. and it's like it, a foreshadowing yeah now i will say the film i guess if you look at riley's life there is a a, a joy and then the it does go back and forth actually a little bit with mm-hmm. riley um, but I feel like the film really makes that leap over once once joy and sadness are out in the world, in the mm-hmm. brain, the mind, um, by themselves. Mm-hmm. So great film, along with Five Feet Apart, it does just really great storytelling to let you know, okay, this is what we, this is ultimately what you're going to get out of this film, but we want to give you both arguments in a strong, strong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last film we have here as an example of, you know, well-balanced film storytelling um this one i'm a little iffy on this one but i wanted to include it because also it's very popular so i know a lot of people watch this film but parasite a poor family in korea takes advantage of a wealthy family (laughs) in order to take over their home and resources although the wealthy family did nothing wrong the poor family ends up causing you know super catastrophic events ending in death for both the families which is yeah that is so true both families experience death Mm mm-hmm Dude, that's so true. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. It, yeah, that's pretty crazy. That is pretty crazy. Yeah, this film kind of like, it was super creepy. But it like you can see both sides. Like both families had needs. And Yeah, both um, families had needs. So the, the rich family needed help from lesser rich people. To, like, help them. Like, they needed a tutor. They needed a maid. They need... Like, they needed those people in order to keep doing what they were doing. Yeah. Um, And then the The, poor people needed... Money. (laughs) Money. So they needed to work for the rich people. But it was just... It was really crazy how the entire time the poor family was abusing the resources of the rich family and totally twisting it on them. 
And but also, I mean, also the wealthy family was, you know, in a way taking advantage of them in you know how they how they work overworked them in a way in certain in certain respects. But did they? really get into that deeply because i felt like they didn't treat them that badly i think it was just it, it it got it got cumbersome for them because you know after the rainy events they got flooded they're like oh we need you to come over and be here on a birthday even mm-hmm. though it was kind of like supposed to be their day off technically oh but their own house got destroyed yeah but it was it was more than just that too it was like you know, you heard the father say it, and then also they started like talking about, oh, they they all smell funny, or like the driver smells funny, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then also, um, you you uh, heard the father tell um, the poor family's father, like, hey, you know, pick up pick up your you know uh, smile for us, you know, we're paying you a lot to be here. Mm-hmm. So they were a little bit abusive as well as like hey if we just shove money in your face you should be here and be happy and be grateful for this opportunity mm-hmm. but again like i it's i don't really take any sides with either of the families like i think uh i mean you kind of want to take you want you, <laughs> you kind of want to take one side though with the rich family just because the poor family's dad does kill the rich family's dad but also too the poor family they were lying the entire time so it I mean, I feel like they were sort of the antagonist in a way. Yeah. See, okay, that's a longer debate, and that's probably we should probably actually talk about this film more, more yeah. in depth. But, but it what I like is that you can come out in both ways. I heard people on on both sides like, no, it's all about like, you know, how bad the the rich are to poor family, poor people. But then I heard other people, and this is where I agree. Like, but also the poor the poor families the poor family was like. Uh, you know, uh, they were liars. Uh, they took advantage of the system and mm-hmm. killers, right? So it, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. It was it was crazy. Cra- that movie's crazy. It it changed my life forever in a in a traumatic type of way. Yeah, but it was so powerful. It won like six Oscars, and I think the reason why is because it spoke to something um, that we all feel in society about class systems. Yeah. But again, you do not feel preached to. You just watch the actions of characters. You hear a little bit of dialogue, but mainly it's the actions of characters on screen that then, sh- then and then the choices they make, mm-hmm. right? Of, of you know, I, I don't even want to say the themes at this moment because I need to reanalyze this film. Mm-hmm. But there's a message in this film, yeah, that everyone kind of understands. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not gonna voice it right now. So a, a great example. Yeah. Yeah. I, now, I, now that we discussed it, it's like okay, I'm glad we picked this film. <laughs> and then uh, we have one example. Of a preachy, didacticism esque film. Yeah. Avatar. Two thousand nine Avatar. Not Airbender. Just yeah. James Cameron. Yeah, James Cameron. The, the Avatar. blue people. No, and, and it was not hard to find this to find an example. Like it totally <laughs> makes sense, right? Like, oh, you know, like you know, save save and protect the environment. <laughs> That's a such, and it's I mean, hard to it's, argue. It's more. I mean, some people argue with it, but it's hard to argue with that. Like, who wouldn't want to save the planet? They're you want to save? Yeah, you want to save the planet. Mm, excuse me. You can you can save the planet, but we also need resources to fuel like modern modern society. Mm-hmm. But but how important is keeping up modern society? You you want to run hospitals? You want to pay for the pharmaceuticals that will allow you and your family to live. I mean, we don't have to go. We don't have to get yeah. into this, but that's I, I'm not. I'm just. I agree. I, I. This is you know. Avatar to me was um, 
what was that old animated film with the fairies? Fern get Fern Fern, Fern Gully. Fern Gully. Avatar was Fern Gully. So it was I don't know. I feel like James Cameron is like, oh, I made this epic place. Like, bro, you, you copied the story. <laughs> but it was just so powerful. I don't know why his films are so powerful, but it was just so powerful. He just creates gold. Yeah, he really does. He really Every does. Every time. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a James Cameron movie that sucked? No, but I we probably will see it because Avatar 2, 3, and 4, and 5 <laughs> are around the corner. You're, so. not a, you're not expecting those to be good? No, I'm not. I'm... I'm We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> but um, but the thing is that what, what I liked about picking this film instead of like the obvious like Christian films that we could have picked like um, God's Not Dead. Passion one, of the Christ. One and two. <laughs> well, Passion of Christ, I, I don't want to, I don't, I I feel like that story is not, I, I, I would want to investigate that story more because that story is more of like a biographical, autobiographical narrative. Mm-hmm. So I want to leave that one alone, but I would yeah. say God is not dead is a perfect example. Yeah, those are ridiculously preachy. But but I didn't want to pick that film because those are so obvious. Mm-hmm. I think people need to realize that even in films like an Avatar, you can go and watch it. Like everyone watch Avatar. Mm-hmm. That film is super preachy. But I guess it's like one of those things where we all agree with the preacher. We all like the preacher if we agree with the message. Yeah. Kind of so um but yeah, so in all these films, we discovered that there are certain stories that shouldn't have a didactic way of sharing a message. And again, it's it's kind of hard because Avatar, what makes Avatar great is because this push, this slanted argument, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess we'll have to see if James Cameron is able to tell a new story with the same world universe he's building. So maybe, I, maybe for him, it's good to have slanted arguments. Yeah, I mean, I think... It works first. It depends on what the story is yeah. and the way you tell it. Because yeah. obviously didacticism can work for specific stories. Yeah. But I think, I, I think you have to be really careful with when you choose to use it and how you choose to use it. Yeah. Because it can make the film annoying to people. Like, yes. why are they just nagging me on this topic? Like, I just want to experience a story. And they're trying to, like, tell me how to live my life. Like, there's certain... It's yeah. weird. Like, you have to pick pick and choose your battles, I guess. <laughs> I think I think the thing is, is reading the room. Reading society is a big part of why certain films are blockbusters and certain ones aren't. Because it comes at the right time for society. Right? And Avatar came true. at the right time because you have a whole generation... Maybe two generations have already grown up with the whole idea of, like, save the rainforest and all that stuff. Yeah. So it was not something where people people see the message or like, oh, this is a load of, you know, like <laughs> it's it's not something you have to really fight about with people. Yeah. Now, like because even even if you don't agree with climate change, like I don't even want to even say those words. Right. But everyone can agree like, oh, it's not good because of you know what we've learned about how we treated Native Americans, which is a big part of this type of story, mm-hmm. uh, how we treat the environment, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, manifest destiny, all those things like. We kind of have already evolved as a society to say this is something that we kind of all can get around or get get behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're gonna if you're a writer that wants to express an idea that is not sold as much on in society, that is more groundbreaking. That mm-hmm. is you know because that's the thing like a great story has a message has a has a story the author really wants to get a point across. It's not just all the boom boom like there's something <laughs> deep in there that you can take from the message uh-huh. um and so 
you know, if you're as a writer, a storyteller has something that society really isn't completely like agreeing with, then that's where you have to be careful that your film isn't didactic. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. <laughs> cool. Wait, I wanted to do more of an ending to that. I was just like, yep. On next week's episode, uh, we're going to continue the series about understanding story. Let me make sure I, I say that correctly. It is, yeah, understanding story series. It's part two of three. And we're going to talk about something that uh, I found in a YouTube video. I will give credit in the next uh, in the next video, uh, the next podcast to this YouTuber called Mythic Dissonance, which is very interesting. This whole idea that dissonance meaning that two, two, I guess, two groups or two uh, arguments are completely not resolving with each other and mythic being the sense of myth and the whole idea of why do we have these fan um, splits, mm. uh, fandom splits. And I really want to get into Mythic Dissonance and the Star Wars fandom. And we'll kind of discuss like why that happens. Is it right? Is there some logical reason as to why this happens? So that, that's that's what we'll be talking about next week. Mm-hmm. And if you guys have projects that you are working on, please post on social media with the hashtag MustyCreative and we will share it and you on the show. And we also want to thank our monthly supporters for helping us make this episode of the Musty Creative Podcast. Thank you so much. With your support, we can get better equipment, we can make better shows, we can have more guests that can tell interesting stories. Um, It's just all around a win-win. So if you can support us at anchor.fm slash musty, click on the support button and help us to level up or power up or we should put that um mario thing when he gets the mushroom yep that's all we have time for remember to leave us a review on itunes and find us on twitter instagram facebook and anchor.fm slash musty (laughs) in uh thank you for listening to the podcast now it's time to shower up them a satisfaction they couldn't get any other way.